0: Hello, and welcome to Benyo Chats, my personal podcast. If you're curious about the world, this show is for you. What does improvisation tell us about being human? On this episode, I speak to Lee Simpson, one of the foremost improv practitioners in the world. We discuss the languages and principles of improv, the world of theatre directing, and what it might mean to build back better for the arts. If you appreciate the show, please like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast. Enjoy. Hey everyone, I'm super excited to be speaking to Lee Simpson today. Uh, He's a long time uh, comedy store player and also the co-artistic director of Improbable Theatre. So Lee, I think in your life's work, you have had kind of two Broad strands as I've seen in it from the outside. You've had a kind of improv strand and a directing or a theatre directing strand. Um, how have those two strands kind of built together and how do you kind of see them at the moment? Um, I guess they're built together
1: because they grew from each other or one grew from the other. Um, So way back uh, in the last century, in almost the middle of the last century, when I was at school um, and did school plays, our English teacher, the English teacher who directed the school plays found a book called Impro by Keith Johnston. I think pretty much as it came out in 1979, uh, he read it; it changed his life, and he set about changing ours. So we started doing these exercises from, from this book. Um, so in that sense, that kind of interest, you know, just as a someone doing school plays, grew into a, a, an interest in improvisation. Um, then later on, once I'd been through drama school, um, I met Phelim Phelim McDermott, the the other co-artistic director of Improbable. I met him because he'd been on a workshop with Keith Johnston down in Dorset. And the people who'd been on the workshop in Dorset wanted to carry on the work, but they needed some uh, people who'd done a bit of improv, as we used to call it then, no, we call it improv now, because that's what the grown. Americans call it. And <laughs> it's grown
0: one letter, improv- yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, we have to do what the Americans say in the end, you know, we, we, we they hold out for a bit. Um, yeah, Phelim, uh, they wanted to do some shows at the Tricycle Theatre and Phelim was part of that group. I was drafted in as someone who had actually done a few improv gigs in London in the mid-80s and that's where Phelim and I met and then from meeting in a kind of improv setting, Phelim then asked me to make some shows with him. Uh, and so from that moment really, the, the two things coexisted for both myself and Phelim.
0: Wow, I hadn't understood that the two were intersectional for some such an early stage. That brings to two questions to mind. One was going to drama school in, in the first place. Was that partly inspired by a teacher who was in, inspired and suggesting to go down, down that route? Um, and then I wonder at drama school, uh, did they teach much in pro as it was probably known at the time? Because I had the sense that actually drama schools were going slightly down this other strand, the kind of taught theatre strand, and and that's one of the differences I I was interested in between the kind of impro schools where um, the the Keith's book still seems to be actually foundational after all of this time, rather than uh, a particular school or centre.
1: Yeah, I mean the reason why I went to drama school, the, the teacher at my school, his name was Bob Hewitt, he really inspired me and, you know, lit the fire around theatre and improvisation so I went oh I'll be an actor then because that's what you did Uh, I'll be an actor so but I was living in a a little village called Bradwell near Great Yarmouth in Norfolk which is nowhere Uh, so I thought well I need to how do I get myself to London and I thought the neatest way to get myself to London was to go to a drama school I wasn't necessarily looking for a training I was like looking for a geographical shift so I applied to drama schools, did a couple of years uh, and eventually got accepted um, into one. Uh, so that's kind of how the drama school thing happened. And the school I went to was a place called Webber Douglas Academy for the Dramatic Arts. We used to call it the Douglas Bader Academy for Dramatic Arts. I'm not, I'm not sure why, silly joke, but we did. And that uh, named it that they thought of themselves as giving a classical training. So a very anti-improv in lots of ways. You would, they were supposed to turn out sort of RSC-ready actors, remembering this is the early 80s. Um, at that school, there was a, a visiting teacher who wasn't really a, a member of staff, but would come and teach stuff, called Andy Harmon. And he was an American who'd, who'd uh, studied with Paul Sills, uh, uh, who was... Uh, Viola Spolin's son, and I think it's studied with Viola as well. So Viola Spolin is the godmother of improvisation. So we have these two parents, really, the American, which is Viola, and Keith, uh, the British. Um, and they are different, they do come from different places. Viola's work grew out of theatre games that she played with immigrant children in Chicago in the 20s uh, to promote their kind of social skills and you know the 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 issues that they were having being in a strange country so she was very interested in that sort of thing and and her improvisation methods grew out of that whereas Keith's kind of was a royal court writers group that 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 whole story so so it's kind of different clearly talking about the same thing clearly interested in the same things just arriving at it from slightly different routes anyway Andy Harmon Uh, used to come and teach at the drama school and he would be given the problem groups so the groups who were a bit rubbish as far as the drama school was concerned and i was in a problem group and i think i was probably a problem in the problem group so we were given andy harman so andy harman uh did some very different improvisation than the improvisation i'd done up to that point which had been basically from keith's book So that was fantastic, that totally broadened what I thought improvisation was and what it could be, gave me a whole set of other things, hooked me up with Andy, who was the first person to give me a gig in London once I'd left uh, drama school. So Andy was seen very much as an alien in, in that environment. That was an environment that was very much about the classical training, the classical actor, voice, speech, elocution, um, physicality, all of those things were taught in a very, very, I guess, old-fashioned way. You know, talk like this, hold your body like this, breathe like they taught you how to breathe, breathe like this, speak verse like this. We had makeup classes, do makeup like this. So it was, it, it was that, and then there was this kind of rogue element, which was Andy and the improv, and that was obviously the thing that I was most
0: excited by. And. Going back to the 80s, just thinking about it, was the work of um, Boal also there and interesting for that type of games or community and and thinking, was it, had it not really infiltrated drama schools by that time?
1: I can't imagine that Boal had certainly had, Boal hadn't infiltrated uh, Weber Douglas at that time. It hadn't, I wasn't aware of uh, his work at all. It was only much, much later that I became aware of uh, his work. Uh, So no, there was no, There was no Boal, there was no Grotowski, there was uh, was no Brook, there was, you know, there was a kind of passing acknowledgement that these people existed, but it it was all ridiculous. I mean, um, our acting coach spent pretty much an entire lesson telling us why improvisation was impossible.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, that's great. Although I guess you always kind of want to prove your teachers wrong to some extent. So maybe that's quite a good impetus. And I, and I guess if you sort of fast forward to today, I still think the worlds of improv and say a more classical theater tradition, even if it has been more infiltrated by Brooke and Boal and the others, still seem quite far apart. Is that your observation as well? And, and do you think it goes to these slight roots of where classical theater people kind of either don't do improv or think it's, it's for games and playing and, and not a, a serious... Exploration of the nature of language, and the nature of what it means to be human, and those type of things.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I think there is a, there is a gap. There is a kind of uh, what, what would you call it? I don't know. There is there yeah. There's a there's a polarization there, and a lack of respect. I think on both sides, uh, and a lack of um, a sense that the other side is not really w- w- worth. Very much. I think that's certainly true that theatre trivialises improv or improvisation um, and sees it as not particularly serious or worthwhile. But then, you know, the, the improv world is one that presents itself very often as trivial and not worthwhile. Um, and we have, a, we have a massively long and sort of valued history uh, of theatre as a kind of subdivision of literature literature in this country you know we theatre is you know people read plays as part of their literature studies so the the kind of the the, the reverence given to, the, to the, the written word uh is is incredibly high in in british theatre tradition much higher is my guess than in other world theatre traditions so the idea of letting go of that written word uh, is, is, is harder I think in, in, in terms of the tradition of theatre in this country I mean when we were doing you we start off by talking about the 80s when, when we were doing improvisation in the 80s uh, lots of theatre people were just angry at us and they would say what do you think you don't need writers? So they, they thought we were a kind of a a, a a movement trying to get rid of writers from theater um,
0: wanted drama on the cheap no playwright because it's cheaper to do.
1: <laughs> well yeah they, they thought we were disrespecting writing. Yeah. We thought we would we were saying well who need who needs a play who needs a playwright you know playwrights mm, don't need them. Um, and of course that was <laughs> absolutely. That was nothing to do with what we, and the other the other approach was they people assumed that you'd worked it out beforehand so they said oh you've definitely worked that out beforehand." if so basically it was two two outcomes if it went well they said oh you must have worked that out beforehand and if you said no we didn't they didn't believe you or if it went badly they went well what do you expect it's improvised
0: yeah so you need a like, writer don't you
1: <laughs> you need to write it, don't you? yeah so there's a real catch 22 around the whole uh, thing right through, you know, the early to mid '80s,
0: and I guess improv probably doesn't help itself because it pokes fun at everything. I guess so many things it would poke fun at theater, so that would give a impression of it not being serious. And I guess the impression is that improv is about being funny and humor and comedy. But I sense, particularly if you go back to the work of Keith or um, from the american tradition it seems to be many other things in fact humor is perhaps one smaller part although that's the part that people see do do you think the language of improv actually does stretch much wider and is this uh, i think it's an area that perhaps you've been exploring over the last 10 20 30 years and what have you discovered or reflecting on the language of improv now
1: um yeah of course yeah the the the, the the breadth of expression that's possible with improvisation is just as it might be for theatre or, or any other art form. Um, I think that's, that's pretty obvious and self-evident. However, um, improv has, it's very, very complex because there are economic, there's an economic situation So for theatre, whether it's subsidised or non-subsidised, there is an infrastructure that supports its production, however weak or under threat that may be perceived to be. That infrastructure is there. There is a pathway for that to happen. Um, So it happens. Uh, And there is an infrastructure to support work, theatre work, traditional theatre work of all sorts. And there is a kind of pathway for that to happen. For improvisation, that hasn't existed, and maybe only just about is starting to exist. But that really hasn't existed, so it's had to feed itself, if you like. It's had to create its own world and its own infrastructure and its own support system. Now, doing that in uh, in this you know economic structure that we have um, means creating stuff that's that's going to be immediately uh, appealing to people who were going to give you enough money to do another thing um, so the improvisation although it didn't begin as comedy at all or as Keith calls it light entertainment that's what Keith says most improvisation is light entertainment uh, it didn't begin like that at all but um, to survive to get people in to sell itself very often improvisation has Presented itself and become light entertainment. And so structures and infrastructures that support improvisation or improv as light entertainment started to grow and started to build up. And now you know there are some there are some that exist. Um, now there's an artistic, I think there's an artistic reason why improv tends towards comedy or light entertainment, and this is one that Keith identified very early on, which is that improvisation um, is very much about a feedback loop with the audience. So the performer does something, the audience has a response, which the performer perceives, which informs the next thing the performer does, which the audience responds to, which the audience, per- which the performer perceives, and so on and so on. So. The feedback loops are happening, not just between the players on the stage, but they're happening between uh, the performer and the audience. And that's very, very important uh, in improvisation. I think it's very important in theatre, but that's a whole other discussion. Um, Now, the most tangible audience feedback is laughter, because you can hear it. They either laugh or they don't. So what happens or what has happened and what happened is performers noticed the tangible response and then that trained them to do the next thing to get the tangible response so this feedback loop started to train improvisers into being funny Keith talks about performers being trained by the audience to be funny and he he speculates uh, uh, about what it would be like if you could actually hear the sound of the hairs on people's arms standing on it you could hear the sound of people being um, engrossed in some way, but you don't hear those things. The the messages that the audience sends you that that's what's happening to them are much less tangible, are much harder to perceive. And very often to to perceive them, you have to almost dream them. You almost have to kind of sense them. Um, So audiences have trained improvisers to be funny Uh, and i think that's so i think yeah there's a kind of there's an economic kind of structural part of that story and then there's a kind of artistic part of that story what that means is that if you want to expand or re-expand the palette of improvisation then you've got to do some stuff to support that to keep that going because otherwise it just just you know you, you, it disappears. It kind of gets squished. Um, so that I guess that the work that Phelim and I and lots and lots of other people have done is around that. Is around finding ways to uh, to hear other responses from the audience, to hear other responses from your fellow players, to hear other responses from the world, uh, and to support people to be on stage and stay awake and listen to all their impulses, not just the impulses which are around being funny.
0: That makes a lot of sense to me, that sort of financial imperative or catalyst, that structural underlay, and then that artistic one with the feedback loop. I was speaking to a games philosopher recently, and he uh, spoke about a term that he considers process art, and that actually a lot of art is in the process or that feedback loop, and actually that's where it's created and to be kind of quite aware of that in any of these well, he was talking about games playing and that type of thing, but we extended it to anything where you have that audience performer because actually, as we know, a performer without an audience isn't the complete work of art, and so we know something happens in in that uh, in that interaction and i w- I was reflecting on that that although there is now perhaps a little bit of infrastructure for comedy or light entertainment, as Keith might say, uh, it strikes me as there's no real great improv schools in the UK or schools or or universities or, or drama schools, which you think of as improv. And I guess in Europe, uh, we think of Jacques Lecoq a little bit in that tradition, um, but probably there seem to be fewer even in, in Europe. Um, Do you think that's just that economic imperative that you spoke about, and therefore would it be a great idea to have actually at least a centre where people could learn improv and maybe also learn comedy? Although there seem to be two separate schools, I I think although they viewed it slightly differently, uh, I think the Greeks taught comedy as this separate uh, as this separate art, so you would have had you would have had a school for it, or at least if you had a school of drama, you'd have a what would we call it nowadays? A tragedy track, a comedy track, or uh, uh, whatever, uh, whatever, <laughs> whatever it would, uh, whatever it would be. So, I, yeah, reflecting on should we have a have an improv school in the UK? What what should it do? Should we maybe have a comedy school? And is it just the economic imperative? Or I, I guess you hinted at that tradition of the the written word being so important to the classical English theatre that perhaps it, it's just not allowed the space to grow something which is from so much more of an oral or physical um, theatre tradition?
1: I mean, there are people who are beginning that process. So there's uh, an organisation called Hoopla, there's one called Free Association, there's the Nursery, and there's now one called uh, The Improv Space. So the first three, um, Hoopla, uh, Free Association and Nursery, are um, actual spaces, buildings, or, you know spaces um, and then the improv place is a uh, an online space um, and what they've done is they've adopted essentially the American model in terms of improvisation and the American model in terms of financing an improvisation organization is workshops is teaching so you have a part Of the organization which is about performers and performing and there's a theater but the main income is from people learning about improvisation and that becomes the main income because the majority of people taking those classes are not professional performers so it becomes a thing that people do either professional development personal development or just because it's fun this is long-standing model in uh, the States. So, and s- things like Bay Area Theatre Sports, these are multi-million dollar organisations, um, and some of them, um, like the, uh, the Grandlings in LA, uh, they they have a real kind of structure of, of, of um, workshops and courses that you take one after the other, uh, and that's how they survive that's that's a real now there's obviously there's a corporate arm to all of that but I I think the basic structure is, is is kind of borrowed from 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 the states so in a smaller way they are like improv drama schools they kind of are presenting a series of courses a curriculum um and a set of teachers that can take people through from absolute beginner to someone who's on stage uh, performing and maybe that's you know maybe they will grow maybe they will grow into bigger organizations maybe they will grow into organizations which have links to dra- to actual drama schools I mean it, it, I don't know when we when we want to mark the beginning of you know the theater in the UK whether it's the mystery plays or you know sort of pre just pre-Shakespeare but um If that's, whatever, 600 years, five or 600 years of theatre, I'm not sure when drama schools appeared, but probably a hundred years ago. I don't know when RADA started or anything. So it went for a long time without any. Um, And If we mark the beginning of improvisation as we understand it in the UK from 1956, uh, then that's what, it was 60 odd years old, 65 years old, um, so so that's kind of happening already I think um, and there is a certain amount they each have their styles they each have their own kind of worldview. Uh, the free association is, is very American uh, and that's, that's what they say they say they present an American style training uh, whereas the nursery and the hoopla uh, don't necessarily quite as much uh, the improv, improv place I'm not as familiar with because it's a little bit newer, but it's an online space that was actually planned before the pandemic. Uh, uh, Katie Shute and Chris Mead kind of went, Oh, there's a gap in the market here for some online improv training. And then the pandemic happened. They went, Oh, well, we, better do, we better do this then. Um, so that sense, and what those places have done, which I think is absolutely brilliant. Is they they engender a sense of community, in terms of improvisation. Um, they're places for people to learn and perform, but also for places for people to hang out and for audiences to hang out. I think they they have very loyal. I mean, who knows what it's going to be like once, as we come back from pandemic and all of that. But certainly pre-pandemic, I was so struck with the sense of community that you got in those spaces, both with performers and audience. I I, I thought they were just brilliant. They were wonderful, wonderful spaces. Uh, And the people running them clearly love improv so much. Um, And it's something that, they're all set up by people of a a younger generation to me. It's something that my generation of improvisers never did. Um, And that's what these uh, younger, generation of improvisers have done I think it's absolutely fantastic
0: so if funding wasn't an issue and you were say the director of the next improv school what would you perhaps investigate or do differently
1: I think I think it would be improbable it would would be what what would improbable do what would improbable teach how would improbable approach that um so it would it would essentially be a a school or a training that was around that looked very similar I think to the way we might create a devised piece of theatre or rehearse a scripted piece of theatre even um so it would just gather together all the stuff that I think we've happened upon and been excited by over the years and the things that we continue to be excited by and continue to happen upon Um, i think that would probably if i was gonna i would say that would would be looking to create improvised theatre rather than improv um, at this you know but as in saying all of that I, i have to really stress i i i'm i'm totally fine with light entertainment i love light entertainment I love comedy. I think light entertainment and comedy are, are noble pursuits. Um, and, you know, I've, I've paid my rent. The Comedy Store Players yeah. has paid my rent, you know, for the best part of 30, 30 odd years. Um, so yeah. I'm, no, I'm, I'm no one to kind of chuck mud at comedy or, or light entertainment. Um, and not just because it's paying my rent, I think they are absolutely noble pursuits and there's a dignity and uh, beauty and integrity to comedy and light entertainment. Um, and I think the, what can I say, the lack of respect that those, those disciplines or those parts of theatre or, or performance are shown is somewhat classist in my view.
0: I, th- I think I'd agree I think comedy if you think about its ability to change the minds of people what a good joke does or something which isn't really a joke but plays through in any extremism or the way that it pokes fun at any any well really anyone right there are there are all of these things and the way it can do it through all of these different devices, whether that's story, inversion, you know, repetition, twists and, and all of that. And I, I think that's why it's interesting. You can go back to Greek times, at least in the Western tradition and see how important it is, it is there. Uh, and I think there is something about, let's call them populist arts, which haven't broken through, which I think is in this country classist or somethingist. I haven't quite uh, quite figured it out. Um, So I want to maybe dwell a little bit on your improbable work as well, or where it intersects, but just the last couple of bits on uh, improv. I was reflecting on your comments on the deep language of improv, and I was thinking that actually it does seem to, at my kind of first glance, riff on some potentially deep human processes. And I I was thinking of just two, quite simple ones about how good improv often uses repetition or repetition and then a twist and say metaphor and story and you go back to simply let's look at a writing tradition where they use repetition or repetition and a twist uh, certainly as a technique for that and then you go uh, forward in life and actually repetition or whether it's a power of three or something is something which seems to be very deeply universal amongst humans. And then that repetition and a twist aspect uh, seems to occur everywhere. I don't know whether that's because I now see that as the pattern or the pattern is reflecting me, that uh, I'm not sure. And I I remember seeing many, many years ago, maybe 20 odd years ago, um, a group sort of showing this reputation that someone, I think it was a kind of clown figure, essentially walking into a wall um, and just repeating that. And the first, first time wasn't that funny, near the second time. By the fifth time, you had this kind of tragic comedy thing because you knew what was happening. Uh, by the eighth time, it was hilarious. And then something like the eleventh time, there was a twist because it didn't repeat. And so your expectations were all broken, which was even more super hilarious. And that's really stuck with me because it, it just seems that there is some deep process uh, going on there. Um, so I'd be interested in any reflections that you have on what techniques or things you've learned from improv or this listening and the feedback loop I, I was hearing that what you said about audiences and I think audiences know the laughter thing but we also know the deep silence that's the other second bit you hear in the theater all the time that you kind of think and performers can really play with because you can hear the silence because of that deep absence of noise um that seems to be another one but you, you must have had sort of several others or, or maybe some parallels that you you've reflected on in in your and your thinking that you'd, you'd want to share?
1: Uh, I think in terms of like repetition and twist or, or whatever version of that you have, um, it's patterns and structure and story. I mean, patterns slash structure slash story. And I, it seems to me that we, the human beings kind of think in story. Um, we don't think in data we don't think in statistics we think in story we hire and fire and vote (laughs) and you know and interact and relate and judge in story and story is 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 the placing of events in a sequence that seems to be that seems to make what we would call a story now there are I think I don't think there are seven stories I think there are an infinite number um but our perception our sense of what structure does to us is is i think physiological it does something to us and i think we each have our own little preferences if you like we each respond to different structures in different ways but definitely that structure is there now uh, when people write uh that's Sometimes what's lacking, sometimes that's the last thing that people learn, I think, when when they're writing, um, is that structure. And I think that sometimes is the last thing that people learn when they're improvising as well. Um, What's interesting, I think, about improvisation in, in that conversation is that structure is sort of more important, but it's not predetermined always, in some improvisation structure is predetermined, which is fair enough. But if it's not predetermined, you're then looking at, well, what what is the structure that is emerging? Is it repetition? Is it is the game? Another way of saying it is, what's the game? Is the game of this scene that I'm going to do the same thing over and over again? And when does that change? Or, I mean, Keith, I think Keith's great, great, great breakthrough was status was was to say, well, let's look at status interaction. And that then becomes a language to talk about structure that then becomes a language uh, through which to or through which to describe human interaction. So someone starts high status, someone starts low status. Then during the scene, they swap status. That's structure. That's a story. We know it's a story um and we know when that transaction is complete we know there's a kind of ending or at least a punctuation point so i think structure and that idea of repetition change and absolutely comedy absolutely has to have has to have an awareness of that a real awareness of that and even if you're going to have what you would call no structure then that's a structure it exists and awareness of it is incredibly important and is incredibly important for improvisation because that's what stories are and in the end whether you're telling a joke or whether you're doing a sketch or whether you're writing a novel or you're making a film or you're tell- doing a theatre you're telling a story in some sense um, and Falham and I we, back in the old days would when we were trying to talk to people about what we did we said well, essentially we're storytellers but that can be kind of almost anything, I think. Um, I don't know I've forgotten the second part of your question. That was about structure.
0: Well, it, I guess it was any parallels with that deep, deep structure or language with other parts of life, but you've, you've touched on that with the fact that its notion of storytelling patterns and that stories are the way that humans understand the world, I think is what you were suggesting.
1: Absolutely, yeah. We, we, we see our own, you know, we see our own lives as a story. Um, it's hard to see your own life as a story because you're in it. Uh, I mean, we did a show called Life Game with Improbable, which was uh, a Keith uh, format. And in that you bring someone on stage and you interview them about their life. Uh, very simple questions about their life. Tell me about your father. Tell me about your mother. What's the first thing you remember? Tell me about your first day at school or whatever. And then as they answer, you have people on the other side of the stage uh, who are improvisers. And when you f- hear something, you think, oh, let's dramatize that. You, you use either a game or a, or a scene in order to get people to play out, to improvise the story that we've just heard. And you get the guest involved in various ways. Um, and what's interesting is that the, the, the events which are further from... Where they are now. So the events when they were young, uh, or you know, getting older and older and older, depending on how old they are, um, are told as stories. Whereas if you talk about them about events which are much closer to where they are now in terms of time, or events that happen to them now, they haven't quite turned th- those things into stories yet, and they're much harder for those people to talk about, and much harder. Um, to dramatize or to improvise um, so early on we had a kind of rule we said no one under 30 because there's not enough gap
0: too hard <laughs> yeah
1: they're still in it you know they're talking about their teenage years and if they're 26 they're kind of still in it i don't think we would do that now i think we got better at the process i think we got better at you know turning these things into stories but that was the, the beginning so I think we do that to ourselves but we certainly do it with other people I mean, we we can see it happening when someone dies whether that's someone we know or a famous person at the moment of their death it's a story it becomes a story we, 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 we feel in a position to evaluate or, or tell a story because there's an ending um, And I think that's true on the micro and the macro level. So anything that helps us to understand stories, and I think with improvisation, what's interesting is that you're not thinking about the story and then writing it down or or organizing it. You have to understand what it feels like. So I'm in this scene or I'm in this show. What What is this thing I'm feeling? What does that mean about what bit of the story we are in? What part of the structure are we in right now? And you have to feel it in your body rather than analyse it as an intellectual thing. And I think there's something really valuable in that. I'm not quite sure what it is entirely yet, but I think there has to be something really valuable about that ability or that facility or that opportunity.
0: I hadn't heard that expressed that way. It's really resonating with me, how you view your own life or others' lives particularly through the lens of time, and we make it into myth, into story, in order to make to understand ourselves and and whatever happened. And, and when it's very close. Like I think we're seeing this with the uh, pandemic. We we can't make it into we're still living it. We definitely are still living it. So we find it very hard to 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 understand. I'm also reflecting that you're amongst a sort of handful of artists who have a very long history with other handfuls of artists. And on the one hand, improv and theater is quite ephemeral, uh, you know, in the moment and it lives as its thing. And then if you didn't see it, we record it, but the live audience is probably its sort of pinnacle form. Yet because of your comedy store players and the fact you've done improv with the same group of people or coming in and out over a very long distance of time, that must somehow change the language that you can speak to one another. Because although you might not start with a predetermined structure, you've traveled so many of these paths before, you probably somehow left signposts for one another. Um, You know, oh, you know, I've teed this up and Paul will always do this. And, you know, Lee will always do that when when I do this. And I'm interested in that almost as a process art form because that's one which has happened over time. And I, and I actually think perhaps due to its rarity and also, or perhaps also due to its richness, that is one of the things which draws audiences and communities and these loyal audiences to it because it's a way of us understanding the world and seeing it with this group of people who are telling these kind of stories of now, I guess, through the language of their improv. And we've seen them tell it through time, which just seems to me a deeply fascinating and a really important practice i do you view it as that or like just kind of made this up and it's like a a nice thing to look at and it's like now we just you know go on stage and tell jokes
1: (laughs) i think both are true i think both are true we just go on stage and tell jokes um at the same time you can view it as a kind of durational piece you can say okay a group of people are going to meet once or twice a week and do a comedy show for two hours and they're going to do that for 30 years
0: I mean, that's outlasted friendships, marriages, you know, death, so many deaths and births and political figures and all of this. Right.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It becomes. Yeah. It becomes, it it becomes a piece of art in its, in and of itself, I think. Um, And the stories that kind of come off of that, it becomes a, it becomes a, parallels it, it becomes a story that's what happens it becomes a story and it who knows when that's that story you know the pandemic might finish that story that might be uh, the end of that story who knows um, but i think about you know we were we were doing a show just after the twin towers came down we were doing a show just after diana died we were doing a show when the tories came in in 2010 you know we were doing a show when The Blair government came in in '97. That the kind of key, those key moments or those standout moments or headline moments, if you like, feed into that. And we 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 were with an audience through all of that. We were with an audience through all those events and all those years. Um and extraordinary things have happened. Extraordinary, I don't know wh- why, it's coming into my head. Uh, so I'm, I'm doing, I'll do an anecdote now, if that's, a, that's okay. We, this is a, a long time ago, we were doing a show and someone said, Mo Molem's in the audience. No, no, they didn't. No, I'm telling, I'm telling this story all wrong. We were doing a show and it was the, the news and the tabloids was that Mo Molem um, had admitted smoking marijuana, and it was probably because Bill Clinton was around, and he was he was denying it or saying he didn't inhale, and it was a big, it was everyone was doing jokes about Bill Clinton not inhaling or whatever, whatever. whatever. So we were doing this show, and it was Jim Sweeney, I think, uh, and this was in the news, and he ended up doing some stuff about Momolim smoking marijuana. And it went down very well. And then at the interval, we were back in there. And someone, I can't remember who, said, I think Mo in the audience. And we went, no, oh, my God. Oh, shit. And then they said, where? And, they, and we went back out. And sure enough, she was in the audience. So we've been doing these jokes about Mo smoking weed. And she was in the audience. And then after the show, someone said, uh, Mo would like to come and say hello. We went, yeah, oh, shit. <laughs> What's she going to say? And she came in and she couldn't have been lovelier and we said sorry about the jokes you "Oh, it's fine you know people are doing worse stuff than that and we said what are you doing here you she was the secretary of state for northern Ireland at the time or whatever it was she was doing we said what are you doing here and she said oh me and john her husband she said me and john were sat at home there was nothing on the telly she said oh, oh fuck this let's go to the comedy store which is how she spoke and so she came to the Comedy Store and it started a friendship between us and her. And she became our first president. It's not that well known, but Merlin was the first president of the Comedy Store plays. Wow. Um, and we would have, she would invite us to the kind of apartment that she had in, in Whitehall. And she would have um, evenings where she would cook a load of sausages in the oven and have several packets of Mother's Pride bread and some butter. And that was the food, and you were to make yourself sausage sandwiches. Um, and we had a really kind of close relationship with her. She took us around Parliament and into Number Ten and all this stuff, and we felt very close to her. And then she got sick, and we kept and and she would talk to us about what they were doing, and she would talk to us about how members of the Blair government were spinning against her while she was being edged out because before she died they might not say this she was edged out she was like sidelined you know one can speculate about why that is but she was kind of sidelined after all her work on the good friday agreement and i think the last time we saw her she was really cross because um that they'd been spinning, that she'd lost her marbles, that the the brain tumour had meant that she was not with it anymore. And she was telling us this. Um, And then she died and it was really, you know, very affecting because she was um, such a loved figure. When she took us around Parliament and then she took us to 10 Downing Street, um, she walked from Parliament to 10 Downing Street and uh, people stopped her every five yards. Because they loved her, and you go, wow, you know that that connection that she had with people was so strong. Um, people related to her because she was honest and she had integrity. And she said, uh, "I mean, when she took, she's." I remember we were walking out of Parliament. This has nothing to do with sorry. This has nothing to do with the.
0: <laughs> no, it is. It's it's the it's the. The relationships and the long stories that these things build. So please go on. We were walking out of Parliament and I was walking beside her
1: and she said, I've had enough of this place. I said, Why? You know, you you've, people love you. You're great. You're doing great work. We need people. Whatever I said, I can't remember. She so said, No, she said, I've had enough of this place. She said, It doesn't, this place, and she meant, she sort of pointed at the House of Commons, that doesn't matter anymore. What she was talking about was the shift of power from the Commons to the the control of executive power by the Prime Minister and by uh, the Cabinet. And that the the House of Commons was being sidelined. And she hated that. She hated that idea. She thought that was anti-democratic. And that was a process that she saw beginning with Blair and that government and a process that we've watched happening since then to the point now where we have basically government by edict where you know whatever you want to say you know contracts for ppe or, or you know are not nothing you no know, trade deals are not are not put before the
0: commons um, so Yeah, so really this this government can essentially whatever it wants to do it it can do so yeah and I think that's kind of a really interesting segue to a lot of industries but particularly the arts have this idea of let's build back better this is the kind of phrase I'm hearing and I'm seeing it in uh, theatre and artistic communities but it strikes me this is going to be very difficult without much money and with, with actually less money than it's ever had before and it also strikes me as very difficult because other very worthy sectors, say education and health, also need to build or want to build uh, back better. And it also strikes me as uh, artistic organizations and uh, haven't maybe changed that much over over time. And if you're a young person wanting to get into this, it's harder than ever before with money and, and all of that. So I'd, I'd be interested uh, where you think maybe uh, as a sort of sector we could possibly build back better or or not or, or whether the challenges are going to be we, we'll, we'll just do very we'll do really well if we can survive and then perhaps you could reflect on where you think improbable or your own work might be thinking as to I mean like you know being part of build back better although again when I look at individual organizations I think they're going to be uh, lucky just to rebuild back some work and be relevant that actually to to build back better is already a hurdle which we didn't really achieve pre-pandemic and we didn't achieve when we had a lot more money and and now you're saying it because of this (laughs) we have less money or not I, i it's interesting i obviously that ideal has always been around and i think art's incredibly undervalued as in all of these things and we've touched on some of the reasons money class where we see value business and all of this i think is true but that doesn't change the fact that those All of those factors are are still true now, if anything, in a a stronger fashion. So yeah, I'd be interested on inflections and do you think we can build better? Are there one or two things you'd like to see? Um, Any work that you or Improbable are are thinking of doing or you'd like to do more of in just where we are now? Because I think we can see light at the end of the tunnel, at least for the pandemic and at least for the UK. But it seems to have concentrated all the problems that we had between inequality, between class, between inter and intra uh, and all of this. Um,
1: I think the build back better thing is a symptom of something that was happening anyway, which is a kind of polarisation, not a kind of polarisation, a polarisation around people who genuinely want to create something that's fairer and more equitable and people who don't and either are not interested in that or actively don't want to do that um and it for me it's part of the breakdown of consensus one whether it was an apparition or not one has a sense of mid-20th century consensus like wherever you were on the political spectrum you kind of wanted to make things better now, that may be an incredibly idealistic, false perception on my part. But nevertheless, even the pretense of that appears to have broken down now. Um, and I think that they, you're going to have some organisations and artists and people and whoever who are going to just go, look, there's no money. We've got to do what we got to do to get people in to survive. So all this other stuff, you know, fine, but not now and don't be silly there's going to be that underneath it and i think there's going to be a whole other bunch of people kind of going we cannot this is unsustainable we cannot keep treating this group of people this way we cannot keep treating this group of people this way this is utterly immoral unsustainable and this is part of the reason why we're in the problems we're in the situation it's not part of the reason this is the reason we're in the situation we're in and i see there's a polarization there um it's very difficult in a polarised situation to deal with that because because that just happens. That's what happens.
0: Um, and they're not listening to one another. No. It's almost like that game where, what, where you have people in an asylum and one person's talking one thing and another person's talking another thing. And obviously, they're just talking like this. Whereas, like you say, I'm not sure, but before it feels like you might have been talking different things, but you are listening to one another and saying, oh we overlap here so maybe we can do something and now you're just talking here and here and well that's it and the polarization increases and you and you you just shout at one another and i I don't know how you decide who wins but someone does win eventually and then uh and then that's that's what happens
1: absolutely uh, so what do you do in that situation what do you do i mean you can pick a side um I think I mean I think there's also a this is and this I have no educational or 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 evidential backup for any of this, but it feels like the tide of history is is is, is driving that polarization It doesn't feel like it's a thing that's going to come together. it feels like we're on a there's a there's a tide which is driving um driving that division and that division of worldview it's not even a disagreement necessarily about what kind of world we want it's a disagreement about what kind of world we're in Mm. so you know you know that when the whole black lives matter thing happened basically people disagree about what is happening right now Never mind what happened fifty years ago, or what how things should happen in fifty years' time. Like right now, there's violent, literally violent, and fundamental disagreement about what the situation is. And that seems to be getting, on all on all issues, that seems to be getting more extreme. Um, I have no, I, I have no idea how you do anything about that, and I'm not sure you can, or we can, or Improbable can, I know Improbable can't, we're a little theatre company, we're a tiny theatre company, what can we do? A couple of things come to mind, one of them is that it's it's sort of holding something, um, but holding a space that means something, where there's, there's some honesty, there's some humility, there's some honest, yeah, there's all, all the things that you hope to value, and whether or not those things have an impact on the world, and they usually don't, whether or not those things spread to other people, and they usually don't, doesn't really matter, just, just shield the flame, you know, shield the flame on the candle from the storm, and keep it alight if you can in the hope that at some point it's possible for these things to be listened to again because these things are. There is is not nobody's listening as you said nobody's listening but so let's so keep it alive i think that's one thing um and that's what i feel about the our open space work it's like it's keep a space that. alive keep a space open hold a space where people can come and be themselves and have a conversation where people actually listen to each other and if nobody else in the world is doing that fine let's keep a space where that's happening and of course thousands and millions of people are doing exactly the same thing you have to trust that as well I also think and this is not very well thought through I think there's something about improvisation which has a role to play in that and uh, it goes back to a kind of, and again, I, I lack all the evidence, all the education to speak about this in any authoritative way, but nevertheless, that's, I'm a white Englishman, well, you know, I speak about things in an authoritative way, whether I know about them or not, that's, that's my privilege. Um, when Marx talked about alienation, about the different kinds of alienation, and he talks about alienation from ourselves, And to me, I, that's what I see. I see people disconnected from themselves. Uh, and because they're disconnected from their, um, themselves, they are prey to um, ex- being exploited, their feelings and emotions and fears and worries and vulnerabilities being exploited by other people. Because there's not a really, really strong connection to their own sense set of, uh, of, of values and they, it, You know, you you will have people who are beautiful fathers or mothers or or brothers or sisters or whatever, who who are loving and considerate and caring and understanding in their own environments, and then will turn out to the world and spout the most hateful, disgusting, vile, you know, rubbish. And there's a disconnect somewhere. There's a real disconnect. And I think one of the things that improvisation should do and can do is to connect someone to themselves, because improvisation is about people say oh improv. The thing I know about that is you've got to say yes. Oh no, and that's one of the most misunderstood things in the world, because uh, what you're saying is what you're saying yes to. Are you saying yes to yourself? Are you saying yes to the to your own compassion? Are you saying yes to your own? instincts and your own intuitions can you connect you can't say yes to yourself until you connect to yourself and most people aren't even aware of what's going on inside themselves aren't even aware of the minimal signals that are happening in them um never never mind uh kind of amplifying them and finding out what's there but improvisation is i think a way for people to do that to connect to themselves to connect to their intuition to connect their impulses genuinely connect to them and to say yes to them so the kind of theory that i bang around is that um one of the things i think about is people who are disconnected from art say so like my my parents my mum and dad uh considered themselves the sort of people art was not for them so painting theatre, music, opera, whatever, that's not for the likes of us because we're working class um, and we don't understand it and because we don't understand it that must mean that we're stupid so that's for cleverer people, that's for people, so Picasso is for people who are cleverer than us so we don't understand it so that must mean that we're not. Now that's nonsense but if you think, if your, own, if your interaction with art is that it just makes you feel stupid, you'll, you'll stop interacting with art. Why would you go? Why would you pay whatever, 30 quid, to sit in a theatre and make you feel stupid? You wouldn't do it. So they don't. My parents wouldn't and didn't. Um, if they valued, if they said yes to their own impulses, if they saw a Picasso, and went well that's a load of rubbish or I don't understand it or I'm confused or that makes me feel uncomfortable or oh I'd I like it but I don't know why what they what they, they would do is they would invalidate that response because they don't say yes to their own responses because they don't value their own responses because their responses are not worth anything and that's what they've been told and that's what's been demonstrated to them for their whole lives if they valued that response whether they liked the art or not is it is irrelevant they value their response to the art. So they might go see a Chekhov play and go well the middle bit was boring and not think I'm stupid because I didn't find it interesting but go I found it boring isn't that interesting and they could become interested in their own responses to art then that changes their relationship to art that changes their relationship to what they perceive because as I say, whether there's a positive or a negative response doesn't matter. They have a response. They value the response. They connect to their own response. And that to me is potentially could change everything. And I think the way to do that, the way for people to experience that is through improvisation. I think that's what improvisation teaches us.
0: That's, that's fascinating. I hadn't considered that, but I, that seems true to me that improv can teach you a lot about yourself and what you listen to or not and with all of that status I guess you could call it self-esteem or even just thinking your own thoughts through allow you to engage with the wider world and then make those connections with if I can love my own daughter why can I not love other daughters or whatever I'm slightly making it up to to, but that seems uh, a perfectly plausible call it transmission mechanism. I'd be interested to just reflect on a, a couple of things finally. One was how you came across open space and how you think about that because I think you said oh improbable can't change the world and being a small organization but actually I could suggest that perhaps it has done a lot more at least above its, its weight. One is through uh, devoted and disgruntled d and a kind of open space conference for people within theatre performing arts world to hold this space but I also think to the extent that it will transmit and like you say there may be a lot of people holding their own sort of spaces where it's a non-hierarchical almost participatory form of conference or meeting where people propose their own ideas to talk about and they they self-organize which has lots of cousin parallels with some of the things we're seeing in deliberative democracy or assemblies, or essentially these are techniques and tools for listening to one another and finding a way through, to put it at that very high level, of which this seems to be quite an important uh, part. So I was was interesting to reflect on uh, how Improbable found open space, and maybe to sort of push you the other way to reflect about how it might be having a larger impact than you might think maybe because we're in the story so we're not going to see how those effects are are, are rippling back as as, you know as this pushback because when you talk about the candle the phrase i think about is actually there is never enough darkness to put out the light of a lit candle so if you can keep it alight, actually it it still seems to place and it seems that open space has done that for theater industry and might be doing it more broadly so i'd be interested in maybe how you came across it and how, what it's, what it's done for you.
1: I mean, Phelan found it, Phelan happened across it, was fascinated by it and said, Oh, I'm going to do this. Phelan sent out an invitation. We didn't know what would happen. And then whatever, 300 people turned up. Um, And that's kind of typically improbable. What will will often happen is Phelan will read a book. I mean, I, I sort of began this by saying my drama teacher read a book and it changed his life. Um, so now it's Fadon will read a book and go oh let's do this Uh, and it's some crazy idea Uh, and Fadon kind of drove it through really drove it through we had no idea what this thing was he didn't know what this thing was he thought well the only way I'm going to find out about it is by doing it so we did it Um, and that's a very common thing with improbable is if we do something that we don't know how to do yet that's when we operate at our absolute best. That's when we make our best work and our biggest breakthroughs. And that's not, a, That's I think that's very, I think Brian Eno talks about swimming out till your feet can't quite touch the seabed or something. So that's, that's how we found it. And um, I think the reason why we took to it so enthusiastically is that we saw in it what we'd already been doing but in a slightly more organized form so we saw it we, we looked at it and went oh this is how we do our rehearsals essentially this is how we make work this is how we work already um, but this is it that that that's those sorts of processes given over to a, a, a large complex conversation with a large group of people So it felt very familiar very, very quickly. And so we started to bring open, sort of more open space sort of structures into the rehearsal room. And I think we take our rehearsal room cells into our open space. Um, It's very hard. One of the things about open space that's brilliant, but also problematic is it's very hard to track its impact because it's, it's not built to evaluate because it's random and its effects are deep so it's rather like a piece of theatre or any piece of art it's an act of faith and sometimes you know there are things like um, there are certain things that come out of it which uh, which you can say oh yeah that definitely came from DD, or that definitely came from DD, or whatever but um, mostly you don't know, you don't know. People meet and have a conversation and something sparks and off they go and they create something or people find a different way of being in a space and they take that somewhere. It's, it's very subtle, I think. I know that it's, it's absolutely integral to what we do now um, and it, it solved a riddle for us. So we were making theatre and making work and improvising but we hadn't worked out a way to do that without you know the lights coming on and an audience paying money and 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 making a show uh and open space gave us that devoted and disgruntled gave us that opportunity to take all the stuff we'd learned making and improvising into a more direct relationship with people and people's challenges and people's issues
0: I think that's great and I think it's okay not to be measured because you've got these two opposing forces one idea which comes from I guess company speak which is what what isn't measured doesn't get managed so this is this idea that you've got to measure and impact everything but there's the opposing force which is A lot of things which count can't be counted, uh, which I think is equal and opposing and and potentially greater. And I think back, if you think to the power of art or this connection, this language of of listening, that the Texan lawyer, the white Texan lawyer for Martin Luther King Jr., a key part of his team which introduced rights for minorities in the U.S., He joined Martin Luther's team because several years before he had heard Louis Armstrong play jazz and he heard he heard Armstrong play jazz and he listened to it and he essentially said he wrote down in his diary and this set him on his life path that I have heard genius in a black man and the only thing I can think about is how we need to give these people equality and and from that it, it all started this one uh, idea this I kind of turn around the phrase that uh, sort of snowflake has been taken I guess people are talking woke now but you know this idea of a snowflake well maybe but you you a snowflake goes on a mountain and actually causes the avalanche you don't know which snowflake it will be and maybe you will melt but actually you you get enough of them together and you could be very surprised about their about their impact yeah absolutely
1: yeah absolutely yeah
0: so perhaps one last uh, question then to round everything else off. Thinking about all of this we've covered some really amazing fascinating topics here stretching on philosophy and games and improv and what to think about the world is is maybe what advice or thoughts would you have for um a young person you know about to go out in the world maybe not even just the young person but any person but maybe a young person um potentially maybe they're thinking about an artistic career, but maybe not, right? They, they've just maybe finished university or they're thinking about going to university. What would you suggest they, they think about in terms of what they should maybe do or listen to or, or think about doing with their lives?
1: I mean, my advice would be don't listen to me. Right. <laughs> really. Um... I'm amazed by young people. I'm amazed by the world that they are having to negotiate feels to me, this may be a matter of perception, feels to me more dangerous, more tricky, more complicated, more aggressive. And the stakes feel higher to me. Um, so I don't know if I would have any. I have any advice? I, it would be like it would be sort of stuff that I would. It's gonna be. It's 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 gonna be okay. You're gonna be okay. I think.
0: Um, yeah, I think that's important. It, it's going to be okay. Oh well, I sometimes have a game, recent game where I or we in a group imagine what someone else would say so we call them like well what did, what would phantom boris johnson yeah. say here and you, inevitably you get that right but uh, reflecting on this conversation i would say my phantom lee would say um to go out in the world and listen i think that's one of the themes that come through but that means to listen to yourself truly kind of your own thoughts and views to the extent that you can get there and listen to others, which would be both your peers and perhaps the people you disagree with and see whether you can hear the heart of what they're saying to really understand why you might disagree or not disagree. And I've come away with the sense that a big part of the language of improv is this listening, whether you're listening to the audience, yourself, your players that you're playing with and all of these other techniques which can build on that actually fall apart if you can't get the listening part right because you can't build on that and I'd obviously thought about that a little bit but I hadn't put together how many aspects of that tie so many of those things together and actually tie so much of your work together I think in quite a um, fruitful way. So I, I don't know if you agree with my version of uh, Phantom Lee. There, <laughs> I like it. No, I
1: like it. That does. Sound Maybe good. that's
0: a. That's probably one level slightly deeper than how one most people think about. Oh, you know, get, go and get a job or whatever. I I do think there is something about that, about that listening, that listening aspect, uh, which seems to come through quite clearly.
1: I think that the the I think you're right. I I would I would not disown that Phantom Lee at all. I would perfect. I would take credit for for what uh, you've have him say definitely the thing that popped into my head as as you were talking was I guess the only other thing and that's I've I've done this by accident because I was forced into it. But I think it's like have a think about what your identity is. By that I mean who you are and who you are not what you do and what you don't do. Have a think about what the edges of you are and what the expectations are and play and consciously play around those edges is it possible for you to go to a place where whether that's in terms of your views what you read what you interact with who you interact with who are your friends where you've been geographically um and see what it's like to step outside that a little bit don't kind of suddenly jump out of an airplane in Venezuela. You know, you don't, I'm not saying don't just leap over that edge without any awareness, but really uh, play and flirt and, ha- and, and have a game of of stepping into that place where you don't quite know what you're doing. As I talked about earlier, this is when we've done our best work with Improbable, when we've kind of gone, oh, yeah, okay, then. We don't quite know what we're doing. And it, it reveals brilliant and, and beautiful things. And it broad it, it expands who you are um and i think i've i was forced to do that because of where i kind of came from and geographically and socially or whatever um in order to uh, you know but if you'd said to me like before i did my first gig at the comedy store if you'd said to me do you want to do it i'd have said no i'm terrified if i have if I choose, if I have a choice around that, there's no way I'm going to do that. But you kind of dare yourself to do it, and so you do it, and you you're alive, and you survive, and you. Like when they asked me to be a member of the comedy store players, I I seriously thought about saying no because I thought I can't be funny every week, I can't do that. That's not me. And then I went. I'll do it. And so who I was just stretched a little bit just a tiny bit just stretched a little bit and then it opens out a whole other story a, a whole other part of the world for you. So that I guess that's another thing I would I would say because it because the forces of the world trying to keep you on the track you're on trying to keep you in the space that you're in trying to keep you as the person that they perceive you to be are very very strong. And you have to, I think, take a conscious and deliberate step beyond that.
0: Yeah, I think that's true that you have to take what you might view as a risk, albeit not out of the plane, but just off the path. And that, I I see this in creative endeavours all the time where artists or theatre companies end up going for the, the safer bet and actually it's riskier to play it safe, because that is not as creative or interesting to anyone, mostly yourself, but everyone else therefore uh, watching um, to find that. Well, that has been an amazing conversation. So I will wrap up by just saying, uh, thank you so very much, Lee. Thank you for having me, I've I've had a blast. Great, thanks. If you appreciate the show, please like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast.